Hi. Before we jump into this week's episode, I just want to take a moment and say welcome back to the second season of Choosing Faith. I'm your host, Maddie Sterling, and if you're new to the podcast, good to have you. I took a short break, but I'm back with another round of interviews with some wonderful, inspiring members from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I had some lovely feedback on season one, particularly from members in New Zealand. So if you're a devoted listener, you'll notice I'll now be aiming to include our Kiwi friends. I hope you enjoy the stories that I've lined up for season two and that they can be something you pop on when you're cooking dinner or driving to work and you just want to hear something uplifting. Okay, on with the show. As like a teenager, I had to, at that point, still have faith. But God said to me, Lauren, you have no idea what lays ahead, but know this that I know what's going on, and if you'll trust in me, amazing things will happen. Have you ever had a migraine and suddenly realized how wonderful it is to function without throbbing pain? Or twisted an ankle and noticed how much you rely on your feet to get around? We often take the miraculous workings of our bodies for granted. Today's guest, however, Lauren Nicholson, does not. At age four, Lauren was diagnosed with a genetic eye disease called retinitis pigmentosa, and with only 10% sight, was declared legally blind. Despite the enormous challenges he faced growing up and the pessimistic views of so many, it soon became obvious that even without his eyesight, Lauren was destined for great things. Today, Lauren, a husband and father of four, is a record-breaking cyclist, an award-winning musician, and best-selling author. He ran a successful remedial therapy business for many years and is now a popular corporate and educational keynote speaker. Lauren is the humble recipient of the Queensland Service Award, Vision Australia's Person of the Year Award, a Brisbane Person of the Year nomination, Australian Person of the Year nomination, and only recently was awarded an Order of Australia medal. You don't know too many people with those. In this episode, Lauren shares what it was like growing up with very little sight and how he's been able to overcome his challenges. I'm your host, Maddie Sterling, and this is Choosing Faith, a podcast where we talk with members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and explore what it's really like to live and continuously choose a life of faith across Australia and New Zealand. Lauren is joining me here from Brisbane today. Lauren, thank you so much for taking some time out of your Sunday to be here. I'm really excited. Lovely to join you, Maddie. Yeah, Yeah, this is always fun. I guess I'm excited to be speaking with you today because you've got quite an inspiring story. You know, you're married with four children, you have a successful career, you're a talented musician, pretty inspiring cyclist, and you've served in various demanding church callings. But you've also spent over 40 years dealing with blindness. Now, this is, if I understand correctly, due to a genetic eye disease. Can you tell me the name of this disease and, and when were you first diagnosed? Yeah, it's called retinitis pigmentosa. It's, a, it's an eye disease that affects the retina, the rods and cones on the back of the retina. Now, they the light-sensitive cells that pick up light and colour, and so that sends that information to the brain. You know, when you're looking around, it picks up all of that information and sends it to the brain, and the brain puts it together to make a picture, and that's how we see things, although you know, in my case, most of mine aren't working, so it's kind of like a pixelated picture. But the brain has an amazing way of trying to join the dots and make it a full picture. But, you know, you sometimes think you're seeing things correctly and then you run into something and realize, hang on, I didn't see that. Mm. So it's, um, you know, you don't really see from the outside. You don't notice that I'm, you know, nearly blind because 
my eyes look the same as, as yours on the outside, so I don't walk around with dark glasses on or anything like that. But um, they didn't detect the severity of my eyesight until I was four years old, just as I was starting school, and I had some difficulties um, reading. I was holding things up really close to look at them. And, um, you know, so the little bit of central vision that I did have kind of helped me to get around okay when I was younger, but I only had 10% eyesight. And so that's when I was declared legally blind by the doctors when I when I was tested at, at uh, age four years old. And um, that's what legally blind means, anyone with less than 10% sight. So legally blind may mean that you can still see really large print or, or, or you can see colours or maybe even people's faces up really close. Or it might be just that you can only see light and dark and shapes very, very few people are ever black blind. Most of us actually do still have some kind of light perception or even color or shapes and that sort of thing, but um, it's never, ever enough to drive a car or read normal print or, you know, or even recognize people's faces down the street and reading signs and all of that kind of thing, you know, so it's, um, you know, as you leave home at four years old to go to school, your whole world starts to to expand, and in my case, that was quite challenging with um, such limited eyesight. Oh, interesting. So, I suppose as a child, you had figured out how to navigate around the house. You knew all your bumps and things to avoid, but the school was a whole new environment, and you were learning and reading and and doing new activities, right? And that, and that's right. And you know, and you know, people think, well, how come how can your parents couldn't tell? You know, well. I'll tell you a couple of reasons why. One, one was I was the oldest child in the family. I'm the oldest of six, and so they, they had nothing else to compare it to. It's not like I had a big brother or sister and they thought, gee, hang on, Lauren's not developing as fast as his, as his older sibling, um, and, and so there was no comparison for them. And so they thought, oh, yeah, well, look, he's just a little bit slower than others at, at um, picking up on a few things. But, you know, when you're at home and you're just walking around your house, you know where all the rooms are and the doors are, and you start off crawling and then you get up on your feet and you start walking only a few steps it's not like you're it's not like you're navigating a complicated shopping center or something like that <laughs> when you're six months old trying to find a particular shop and post a letter in the mailbox kind of thing you're not doing that when you're six months old you're not really expecting it I guess was the big thing for my parents and um but, but just to kind of maybe uh, finish, finish that part of the, the story there is um, I'm the oldest in the family of six kids now. And uh, at the time, I had a younger brother and sister who were only one year old and three years old. And, and so the doctor thought, well, I better check, you know, your little brother and sister. And they found my brother was nearly blind as well. He had exactly the same eye condition that, that I had, although just a few more percent better eyesight than I did, but still, you know, kind of legally blind. And then uh, my four sisters that came along afterwards could all see and they thought, well, it's maybe one of those genetic problems that the, the girls carry and pass on to the boys and the boys are the recipients. But that was until um, 
Incidentally, that's how colour blindness more often works. Um, usually, it's only males that get colour blindness, and it's the it's passed on genetically through the female, the maternal line. But then my little sister came, and they found out that she was nearly blind with the same oh, thing. Thwarted the so, theory. <laughs> so the theory just completely got wiped out, and doctors are scratching their heads, thinking, "No, oh, we don't understand quite what's going on here." And and uh, but nevertheless, my parents here they are now raising three blind, or virtually blind kids, and um, you know it was a it was a challenging and interesting and um, in some respects an exciting adventure really. <laughs> but on another sense, it was just normal because that's all we ever knew, and I guess in a way, all my parents ever knew as well. You know, so. Um, and it's the same with me and my wife and my kids. Probably not so normal for my wife, but certainly for my kids, that's that's what they've grown up with, and that's, that's just, just become dad. the. It's just dad. So, what was it like to grow up without full sight as a child? Because you were able to see a little bit more then than you do now. Is that right? Mm. Yeah, well, my sight's diminished now. Um, it didn't diminish until after my mission. Well, probably during my mission, actually. It's probably when I first started to notice it. But again, the, the, the things I was doing became more complex, you know, as I left home and having to travel to big cities and, you know, navigate airports and and um, complicated infrastructure on your own. That, that was really, really challenging and quite scary, to be honest. But... Um, but stepping back a bit, when I started, I had about 10% sight. I've only probably got 5% now. So I had just enough eyesight, just enough to do a lot of crazy things when I was a kid, like playing sport and riding push bikes <laughs> and skateboards and things like that. But we lived in the country, so there wasn't quite as much traffic as there, as there is in the city. And, and, and so that allowed us to kind of get out there and be a little somewhat you know, adventurous. But then as I got older, slowly and by very small degrees, it just got a little bit worse and a little bit worse. And then I couldn't ride my bike anymore. And I remember riding along one day and I was, the car was coming up behind me. And so I thought I'd better veer off the, to the side of the road a bit so that this car can get around me. And there was a guidepost right in the <gasps> middle of the, of the Asheville. Oh, no guideposts are over on the dirt but this time it was actually on the asphalt and I smashed straight into it and flew oh, over the handlebars no. and my bike got bent up I couldn't even ride my bike my poor old mate had to ride back another 10 or 15 kilometers back into town and get his car and come and pick me up <laughs> off the side of the road <laughs> and that's when I I just knew when I was sitting on the side of the road I'm like well there goes my cycling career <laughs> right there <laughs> and so so um, that's when my sight was just got to the point where, well, when I was little, it was just good enough to get around without assistance. And then it got to a point where it just wasn't quite good enough to get around anymore. And so that was your wake up call, was, huh? Uh, <laughs> it was the wake up call. Yeah. Lucky I woke up. Oh, yeah. Who knows what <laughs> yeah. happened? But, uh, who knows what would have happened? But, yeah, look, it was challenging, you know, and even from a young kid going to school, um, 
you know, I, I had to, I moved, I remember sitting in the back row at school and then I had to move to the front row. And even then I was still struggling to see what was up on the board. And I had this big, thick magnifying glass and I had to, you know, struggling to read these books with this magnifying glass. And I had books uh, with um, thick lines in them so I could see to, to write on them. And because some of the, you know, the books that the other kids were using, the, the, the lines were just too faint for me to write in a straight line along them and I had to use a big felt tip pen and you know it was it was it was definitely a challenge just and it wasn't because I wasn't smart you know I I think I was a pretty smart intelligent kid as far as you know learning the English language and maths and science and I had a real fascination for all of that but I just couldn't see it and I certainly couldn't read it even when I did read it with that magnifying glass it was like only a quarter of the speed of anybody else reading, you know, at, yeah. at best. And so, it, you know, when you go to high school and you're trying to read a novel for English or something, it was just like, no way, you know, like you had to finish it in about three weeks. And it's like, I mean, I was only, I was up to chapter three, <laughs> you know, sort of thing. So access to to information was a was one of the biggest challenges really growing up and to some extent still is now you know but certainly technology has revolutionized that you know my computer talks to me and my phone talks to me and um and so i don't have to bother struggling to read something now i can just put the pdf open it up or the word document and then essentially push play (laughs) and it just starts reading it so before this technology came about and and before you figured out how to be an independent adult, to what extent did you rely on family members and, and teachers to get you through certain tasks? That has been successful to various degrees along the way. My parents were very supportive for starters. That I have to point that out. And I was also lucky too that because my mum and dad were members of the church and had a, a, a very strong faith and a very committed relationship, they worked really, really well together to making our family work and to helping us as kids succeed and become independent and and self-reliant. And in our case, very much so physically and emotionally and and, and of course, importantly, um, spiritually as well. And so all, all of those aspects of our lives were an important part of, of our home upbringing. When I was at school, though, you know, some teachers really were scratching their heads like, heck, what's this blind kid doing in my class? I don't know what to do with yeah. him. Yeah. You know, and, <laughs> I mean. And so, because there was no special ed units, you know, and unless you went to like the blind school in Sydney, it was like, well, they they hadn't they didn't have a clue and so we were kind of improvising as we went along and some teachers were pretty open minded and a little bit lateral thinking and they they'd come up with say hey Lauren here I I printed this up for you why don't I record this on a cassette tape for you which we had cassette tapes back in the day <laughs> and and it was interesting because I remember one science teacher did that we were doing a, a module on weather. And uh, in science, I think it was year eight, and we got to the end of that that uh, module, and he'd recorded all of the notes, and I'd go home and I'd listen to them, and and when we came back and we do the test, and when he when he marked all the everyone's exams, and he came back, he had them all in order from the top mark down to the lowest mark. I don't think they're allowed to do that <laughs> nowadays, but but um, 
you know, political correctness kind of stops them from doing yeah. that, I guess, maybe. But anyway, here we were sitting in class and he goes, well, I'm just going to hand these results out. And I, I think I've learned something really interesting here that maybe we'd all benefit from because the top mark in the class is Laura Nicholson. Cool. And, that would have been and, satisfying. And it was just <laughs> one of the few times that I topped the class and it was just a – a testament to the fact, you know what, I was smart enough, but I finally on this occasion got the information that I needed to learn and in a format where I could learn it. And I remember a couple of teachers that were like that. They came and they'd write it in my book in large print or they spent a couple of minutes with me kind of finding some way to adapt um, the information so that I could get access to it. And, and uh, it was just just previous, just as computers were coming out and just as the technology was about to exponentially expand into the into the wide world around us. And unfortunately, I came into the education system just before just that. So I, uh, I, I did it the tough way still. But anyway, there was certainly some willing support out there and there was some willing ignorance out there and there was certainly some real difficult people, both children and adults, that really made life hard. And and often when people ask me, like, what's the hardest thing being blind? Well, no, it's not reading. No, it's not walking down the street. No, it's not not being able to drive a car or not being able to see your family or, you know, although those things are tough and disappointing, it's it's the way other people treated me. That was the hardest thing. Like some people just were downright nasty and um, really alienated me and ridiculed me or laughed at me or bullied me or whatever it was, you know. And, you know, I thought I was a pretty nice sort of a nice enough kid. I didn't certainly didn't deserve to be treated like that. But um, there was certainly a lot of ignorance around in those days. And I wonder how I got through that. And, you know, one was the fact that I had a supportive home environment. I always had somewhere safe. And the other one was the the relationship that I developed with the Lord very, very early in my life, very early. And um, it certainly got me through. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful that you're able to come to that so early on. How did you navigate as you grew people and their expectations of you in in school and then professionally I'm sure that there were people that looked down on you thinking that you were less intelligent in some way I still ask myself that question I I know how I've done it but I ask myself the question why why is it that someone like me has been able to get through such enormous adversity that's thrust upon you. It's not like you even get a choice, you know. I think one of the keys to that is that you either turn to God or you turn away from God. And I see it so often. I, I talk to people even now today, you know, the guy that I tr- treat in my clinic and he's got cystic fibrosis. And I said, oh, you know, are you religious at all? He says, well, I've got to be honest. He says, I wonder, well, how could a God ever inflict this upon me? And I'm like, man, here we are, two grown men in the same room with two equally as challenging kind of disabilities, and here's one guy questioning the existence of God, and here's the other one saying there's absolutely no question there is a living God. 
I remember a challenge mum and dad gave us kids when we were when I was about seven years old. They said, all right, we want you to start reading the Book of Mormon. You know, you need to get your own testimony. And, and so I took up the challenge and I couldn't read the Book of Mormon because the print was too small and I got a large print book and I still couldn't read it. And so I got my magnifying glass out with my large print book and I started to read it. And it was just slow and painstaking. Like, I... Nephi, uh, having been born. Not exactly uh, an easy challenge for a kid who can read at normal speeds. Yeah, I know. And here I was with my large print book and a, a magnifying glass was about four or five centimetres thick, you know, trying to read this thing yeah. like half, half a word. <laughs> I read two verses and I'm like, oh, I need a rest. <laughs> Stop. And anyway, I um, – I tell that story and I said, you know what, I do you know how long it took me to finish reading the Book of Mormon? Seven years. Oh, wow. I was 14 years old when I finished, which seems quite ironic really, doesn't it? That uh, and Because, uh, you know, Joseph Smith was 14, yeah, was 14. years old when yeah. this whole thing happened, you know, and his his light bulb moment happened. And nevertheless, I, I prayed about it anyway and, and and had a really powerful experience, you know. I knew that the Book of Mormon was true, and so I started to read it again. By the time I went on my mission, I'd read it five times. And wow. so that was because, you know, they came out with the audio version of the of the Book of Mormon, and I started to listen to it. And oh, you know, I, I, yeah. I read it as well, and I listened. I did a combination of both, and, um, and that was really good. So a, a couple of things were really important, though, about me sharing that. One was that... I, I really gained a strong testimony of the, the truthfulness of the gospel and of the Book of Mormon. But I think more than that, it was that I knew that that God was listening to me. Was there ever a moment where you felt like you wanted to give up or you wished you had different circumstances? I remember that I must have been in my years of frustration and also deep concern for my future. You know, when I was like 17 years old, it's like... Man, how am I ever going to get married? Who's ever going to ever want to marry me anyway? You know, and, yeah, I, and what job am I going to do? How do I support a family? <laughs> have a family, and I want to get a house one day. So, how am I going to do that? And so, that really was quite scary and, and daunting. And um, I just kind of really worried about that. And so, I remember going to my bishop at the time and saying, look, Bishop, I want to get a priesthood blessing. I, I want to be healed. And he goes, oh, gee, that's serious. He said, do you believe you can be healed? I said, yeah, I do. And so he, he said, well, let's, um, let's prepare for it then. And so my dad was involved and my uncle and a couple of other close um, friends and we prepared for this experience and uh, I, we, we fasted. Everyone fasted for like two days. It was it was a serious event. This, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, I was determined. This, you know, we I needed a miracle to happen, and I, I wouldn't be able to live the rest of my life out of there if I wasn't healed. And so we made it to the bishop's office this uh, Sunday after church, and I was sitting in the chair, and brethren gathered around and laid their hands on my head and gave me a priesthood blessing and. And um, I was, of course, listening very carefully to the prayer and waiting for this blessing of healing and the miracle that was about to happen. And those words weren't forthcoming as such. I got to the end of the blessing and I opened my eyes and I tried looking around the room and nothing changed. 
And, you know, tears welled up in my eyes because I realised, Lauren, you're probably going to be blind for the rest of your life. And so that's when my, my bishop and my dad sat down with me and they said, you know, you're going to have to take this to the Lord. And and, um, and that's what happened. And I was doing that on a regular basis. And, and I remember some really amazing personal revelation came to me very, very shortly after that. And I realized that it wasn't my blindness that God was wanting to heal, even though, you know, God can make any weak thing strong. And there's multiple scriptures in the New Testament, especially where Christ visits the people. And there are many accounts of sight being restored. I can imagine as a young teenager, you going in with those stories and with perfect faith thinking, of course, I can be healed if that's what Heavenly Father wants to do. And it would have been disappointing. Do you know, Matty, something even more amazing happened than being having my eyesight restored. And and at that point, as like a teenager, I had to, at that point, still have faith. But God said to me at that stage, says, Lauren, you have no idea what lays ahead for you <laughs> in life. But know this that I know what's going on, I know what your capacity is, and if you'll trust in me, amazing things will happen. And that's exactly what what has happened. I can't even share with you 1% of the things that have happened in my lifetime. And when you're in the middle of the, the, the thick of it and the depths of despair and discouragement when you have the bad days, which we all still do, you've got to know that the sun does rise again. And uh, I've, I've learned to trust the Lord completely. And, it, and what's interesting about that is that once the Lord knows that you trust him, he also trusts you and will give you not just line upon line, but maybe paragraph upon paragraph, <laughs> chapter upon chapter. You know, like God does talk to you. You're, you're his son or daughter, and it's a close-knit relationship if you if you want that, if you're willing to, to look for that. To and, work for it. And work for it. So you've obviously, you, you know, you're talking with hindsight now, but how did you go from that moment of disappointment as a young teen to where you are now? What were the first kind of steps that you took to pursue a career? <laughs> Um, when I left school or was at the end of my school, I thought, you know, even though music was a talent, I, I realised that, you know, pursuing a musical career wasn't probably the best way to go. And I did a vocational assessment thing when my in my later teenage years and said, you know, you should be a psychologist or, or a sports therapist. I looked into it and I thought, well, look, I do like science and I like being around people. Maybe I should, you know, pursue that. And so I... I've been lucky to have a career working as a remedial therapist. You know, I obviously got to develop the talent within my hands and uh, it was actually quite a, a successful career, I guess. But this was something that, that was really made clear in my patriarchal blessing, you know, um, that I would be blessed with a gift within my hands that would bring relief to the lives of many. I've done that, you know, I've worked on Olympic athletes, I've worked on thousands and thousands and thousands of people and there's not a day that goes by when I'm when I have somebody on my treatment table and I think to myself, you know, this it's just a unique gift from God. So you've got that, but then you also do a lot of keynote speaking and I know that you incorporate the guitar into those presentations. How has music enabled you to use your talents in other areas and, and kind of combine it together? 
I started learning piano when I was a kid, when I was about eight or nine, and my mum played piano, and so my love of music, I think, came from my mum. And mm-hmm. but then I changed over to the guitar when I was about thirteen years old. And you know, when I was going through some of those tough, dark times, the guitar became a real close friend and an outlet for me. You know, to to deal with that, and and I kind of got to a point where I'm like becoming reasonably good at playing, and I'm like wow, actually I can do this better than the other kids in my class, you know. <laughs> like, Is it true we'd... that you are able to tap into your other senses more without sight? Like is that <laughs> a, a musical, is that a blessing? Of the... Oh, it has, oh def- definitely. Yeah, definitely it has been. Yeah, it's funny, I always sometimes trick people on that when they're like, yeah, so <laughs> when you lose one of your senses, do your other ones get better? And they're like, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, I, I don't know. You tell us. Is that true? <laughs> because they start second-guessing themselves. Well, the answer is yes, you do. But it's not because you're born like that. It's just because you have to naturally develop it. I become very aware of what I'm hearing around me. I have to to know what's going on. And I'm feeling not just with my fingers but, you know, with your feet and with your you know, you're sensing in other ways. And I think also because I don't read body language, I, I pick up on um, mood or emotions. Mood, mood and emotion and and I, I guess it can be nothing short really of just the, a gift of discernment when mm. you're talking to yeah. people knowing whether they're looking down or up or whether they're pulling a face or whether they – because you can hear it. Mm. I can hear the expressions in people's faces when when they – yeah, and their voice when they're responding and what they're saying, what they're not saying, how they say it even tells me about the character of a person. Like I'm not here analysing you, by the way, Maddie. Yeah, I'm like, oh, now what have I said? (laughs) But when I listen to you speak – I can tell you about your personality and your character, where your where your interests, where your strengths are, where your just kind of your character traits, because because of the way you express yourself tells me that that has definitely been a blessing. That's so wonderful to hear. Okay, sorry, we got distracted. You were telling me about your music. How did you use your talents on the guitar professionally? It got to a point where I almost gave up playing guitar and I thought, gee it's a shame to have come this far and and to give it away. It's, I used to go out on a Friday night and just play in a local restaurant and I used to do it with another guitar player and so that was okay because I was pretty shy, you know, I didn't want to play on my own and then one day he... He moved on and I was on my own and the guy at the restaurant said, oh, why don't you keep coming? You come along and do it yourself. And I'm like, oh, I don't know about that. I'm not sure if I can play for three hours on my own with no music and no one to <laughs> lean on. And no, you'll be fine. Come along. And so I got through my first night solo and I'm like, wow, I actually made it through and it wasn't too bad after all, you know. And um and people started asking me, hey, why don't you, re- you know, have you ever thought about recording an album? Do you have a CD or something? And I thought, no, well, I don't, but I'd like to have something that I could leave behind for my own kids and that as well. And um, so I recorded my first album and about five months later, I sold enough albums to pay for the recording and and um, people really in- enjoyed it. And, and then it was only about, I'd say only a year later, I was visiting Queensland. My wife's uh, family were living in Tamworth at the time in New South Wales, actually, which is where I grew oh. up. Her father, who was the deputy principal at a school, said, hey, why don't you come over and talk to my year 10 maths class? I want them to 
know if they put their mind to something they can achieve it. I'd never done that before. I just thought, oh, well, I'll have to make something up then, won't I? And I went over and shared a little bit of my life story with them and these kids were just blown away. And he said to me afterwards, he said, Lauren, you need to be doing this. Kids would really benefit from hearing your story. And so he says, why don't you play them a song on your guitar? Man, they'd nearly they'd fallen off their chair. They couldn't believe that this kid who couldn't, I, I can't even see the strings on my guitar. I'd, but, you know, and um, that began a whole new career that I just was not expecting. And, and then, of course, the radio station started hearing about me. So I started doing interviews and, the music was the gateway for that. I'm not there just telling them a story of something that's happened in the past. When you can actually pick up your instrument and play something that's really quite technically difficult, but yet inspirational to them watching, like, how does he do that? You know, like, it, don't tell them how to be successful. Show them how to be successful, you know. Mm. And that's kind of the, I think, why... People have responded so positively, I think, to what I do because it becomes very real and authentic right before their eyes. Yeah. Thanks so much for sharing that. Now, before we wrap up, music is not your only talent and not the only impressive thing that you've done. You also rode across Australia on a tandem bike while being blind. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? I mean, cycling terrifies me and I can definitely see cars coming my way. So how, how do you go oh, about it? Cycling is a bit terrifying. I, I mean, it's sort of dangerous. off it a little bit in the city. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's actually funny. People say, oh, yeah, but don't you worry about all those trucks. The truckies are the best guys. They sort of drive right out right over the other side because they can see you well ahead and they're, they're generally pretty respectful Certainly in the city, it's a bit bit tough, and that's why I gave yeah. up. I gave up cycling when I was about twenty one, and it was many many years later. In fact, it wasn't until I moved to Queensland that I I met a guy that was friends with Lisa's family, and he's he's actually now a world champion cyclist. He came to me and he said, "Hey, Lauren, why don't you get yourself a tandem push bike? I'll go out with you." And I'm like, it's been 12 years since I've been on a push bike. Like, man, there's nothing more I'd love to get out and and ride on on a country road somewhere amongst the fresh air and the gum trees and the and so I, you know, I got a bike and got out and it was just an amazing, liberating experience. And we decided I wanted to, we wanted to ride across Australia. My brother Dean, who's nearly blind, he. He thought, gee, I'd love to come with you on this ride, you know. And so, you know, these two blind brothers and we both had tandem push bikes. You know, John rode with me and another guy called Grant Williams rode with, with Dean. So we flew to Perth, yep. jumped on the bike and rode all the way across to Sydney. And how much did you rely on your tandem partner to guide the bike? I mean, could you kind of feel his movements pretty effectively or? Yeah, yeah that's exactly how it works. You know, it takes a little bit of practice and working, but, you know, luckily Dean and I had both been cyclists from being a kid. So we we were pretty experienced bike riders when we were younger kids. We did a lot of it because that mm. was our freedom. That was our independence when we were little kids. 
but you do need to ride in sync with the person in front of you and you can't go swinging around on the back because otherwise you'll you'll throw veer off, off the yeah. road you know, yeah. you'll throw them off and so you, you work together as a team and the pedals are synchronized together so the pedals don't it's not like he's pedaling and i'm not pedaling although i'd like to do that sometimes but <laughs> <I bet. laughs> All put my right, feet up the on the handlebars <laughs> yeah let him go but he's the one who obviously controls the steering and the brakes and the gears and so forth and we've got to communicate with each other okay lauren we're gonna get ready we're gonna take your right foot out and we're gonna stop and when you go to take off you go you ready yeah ready okay three two one go sort of thing and as you get better at it you don't even have to talk you can just feel it that's amazing through the pedals and through the steering and through the the movement of the bike you you become as one it's a great great lesson really in that Um, yeah there's a metaphor for for marriage, a metaphor for being one with Christ. I'm sure there's lots of things that's, that you've. That's it. Yeah, it's a real metaphor. That's that's exactly right. And so it was hard work. It was um, physically exhausting, you know, like a bit mentally takes you right beyond your limits, you know, right out to your far furthest extremities. You know, when you're riding a push bike, 180 kilometers a day. After day. That's mental. After day. <laughs> no, 180 <thank> <laughs> kilometers. It's just like it's insane. What kept you motivated? Well, we were raising money for Vision Australia. That was one thing. Yeah. Um, we wanted to, you know, help other blind people. And uh, also, but we wanted to do more than that. We wanted to kind of inspire other Australians. And I alluded to this in the very beginning. One of the big challenges with for us as blind people, even though people don't necessarily tease me or bully me anymore, it's sometimes just as simple as the low expectations of others. You mean people just don't expect that those who are blind can really do anything noteworthy in life? That's right. It's like, oh, Lauren's going to need someone to hold his hand to do everything. It's like, no, you don't. I'll go and do it myself. Yes, I do rely on my wife a lot, my kids, to, hey, can you give me a lift to work today? Or, But if they can't, well, all right, I'll have to call a taxi and do that instead. Could you give us an idea of what activities are completely out of the question for those who are blind? And then maybe contrast it with the things that you really can do. Driving is the obvious one. It's amazing how there is so many different adaptive things available to to do it. And and probably to a large extent, it's not so much that you can't. It's just that you need to, you've got to want to do it. Like, I'm not very good at cooking because I find it hard to tell when it's cooked. But there's plenty of blind people who do cook and they've found a way to do it. I've put my time and energy into other things. Mowing the lawn is one that I did as a kid, but I don't do it now. For me, there are some things that it's not necessarily that you can't do it, but the frustration of doing it and the time wasted doing it is not worth the pain and suffering. So I suppose this incredibly long bike ride was one way for you to show the Australian public that, yes, we actually, the blind community, can do a lot of things. Everything's possible. You've just got to find a way to do it, that's all. (laughs) Well, I imagine you finishing that bike ride must have just been a sensational feeling to look back and see what you have achieved. It was a huge achievement. I should point out that I don't necessarily wake up in the morning wondering, okay, now what amazing thing can I do today to try and impress everybody? I don't, <laughs> I'm not, I don't do that. I do it for my own enjoyment, but I also like to try and do things that have some broader 
benefit and meaning to other people as well. What I'm loving from this conversation is hearing about how you have found different ways throughout your life to to find those multiple talents. We all have the potential to be talented and gifted in, in different areas. You've been able to recognize that there are multiple gifts that Heavenly Father has given you and use them in different ways to bless pe- oh, different right. people. That's right. Yeah, there's more than one. You've got more than one gift and more than one talent. And, and it doesn't matter how old you are, there's still potential. It's infinite. You have no idea the potential you have. Even if you're 80 years old, there's still some potential that has been yet yet to be discovered. Do you have any advice for those who are suffering with a burden that they might have it for life? How can they find the positivity and the hope that you seem to have found? It's a huge question, that one, and you have to take it to the Lord. It's the only way you can deal with it. Yeah, go talk to your psychologist. Yeah, have some good friends, hopefully a good partner, a husband, wife, family, parents. That's helpful. But often in life we're looking for people are looking for happiness. What we should be looking for is peace. How did I arrive at this point of peace with my eyesight? I'll tell you when. When I poured my heart out to the Lord and I realized, you know, like, there's nothing I can do to, to change this. What do I need to know? What can I do? What can I? And, the, and then I receive personal revelation. And sometimes it might be just, you know what, Lauren, you need to be patient. And people mm. hate that answer. But, <laughs> yeah, I hate but if you <laughs> if, if you hate that answer, you'll never, ever get the next part to that question. You'll never, ever get the next part of the revelation. You have to accept it. Father in heaven, I'm happy to trust and be patient. Is, is there something I can do that will help my situation? Yep, do this. Oh, heck, it's actually more than just be patient. Let's go and do that. So I'll go and do that. How has serving in the church helped you um, look beyond yourself and your trials? Well, for starters, you get to see other people going through trials, and, and that does two things. One is it makes me feel like, gee, I'm, I'm really grateful that I've got the trial I've gotten. There's always somebody that's worse off than you, and that's good to recognize. But you get to serve and help each other. And what's interesting with that is that when we serve and help each other, the burden becomes so much lighter and easier to carry. Bearing one another's burdens, that's what it's all about. So surround yourself with positive people who who are not just takers but they are givers you know people are prepared to to help you and don't you just be a taker either you've got to be a giver as well mm, you know everyone's got to be 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 givers don't just be takers so that's that's first second one then is just go to the lord build that close relationship with him most of the time revelation comes like daybreak It's just slowly and gradually. And you're seeing the light just slowly coming over the top. But at a certain point, if you are patient and persistent and continue to have faith and trust, and all of a sudden the light cracks over the dawn and you have that that special relationship really blossoms. Thank you so much. It's really good to hear your perspective on things, given how – how many people I think would look at you and think, oh, that's a debilitating disability. And yet you've you've just you've found a way to accept it and still appreciate all the wonderful things that there are in life. And I think there's a lesson for us 
for everyone in that regardless of what we're going through, there's always beauty, there's always joy to be found. There are always things that we can do to enrich our lives and make them wonderful. I think we can probably shoot to our final question. The title of this podcast is Choosing Faith. And I I picked that to acknowledge that, you know, for some faith is really an innate gift, but for others, faith in Jesus Christ is something that we have to actively choose. So with all of your challenges, but with all your successes as well, what does choosing faith now mean to you? It's almost like a full circle in our conversation, isn't it? Because earlier on I was saying, you know, some people turn away from God and others turn to God, and, and it is a choice. And isn't it, you know, a wonderful blessing that we have agency in our lives? In fact, it's the only thing that you control. It's the only thing that we, we own, my free will to, to choose for myself. And I remember interviewing a lady when I was the bishop who came in and she was struggling with um, some challenges in her life. And I said, you know what, I wish I could give you what I feel, what my, my testimony. I wish I could give it to you, but I can't because I've had to suffer for it. I've had to agonize over it. I've had to cry on my pillow for it to arrive at the place where I am right now. But it is a process. And as I mentioned to this young sister, I said, you know, you have to pay your own price and you have to want it. But the Lord is merciful and the Lord is good and he will reach out to you in your time of need. And eventually you inherit all the Father has. And I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to that. I'm happy even if he gives me my eyesight back. That'll be enough. I want to say a big thank you to you listeners for tuning in today and supporting this podcast. I loved meeting with Lauren and hearing how he hasn't let any circumstances hold him back in life. If you enjoyed the story, please subscribe, share it with a friend, or leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. I'd love to hear what you think. And if you know anyone whose story you'd like to hear on the show, feel free to get in touch on either Facebook or Instagram using the handle Choosing Faith Podcast. See you next time.